I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to know this fact that you are the vine dresser, the farmer, and we are grateful, Lord, that you have brought us into the vine, and you have begun to bear fruit in us. We pray, Father, that this fruit will remain, that we will continue to bear much fruit, and we will glorify you. We want to, Lord, please you as your people. And as we are reminded in this passage, we do pray we will remain, abide, continue by faith in Christ, and produce good fruit that produces, in the end, eternal life, that we might experience full blessing in the life to come. Continue, Lord, to confirm to us that we belong to Christ in this passage. And Father, for those who are not a part of the true branches, those that produce fruit, we pray, Father, that you will expose that as well. And may it be, Father, that no one in our midst is one of those that produces no fruit, that dries up shrivels up, is broken off, and then thrown into the fire. We want to be, Father, those that produce good fruit and much fruit. So grant that to us as we are reminded in this verse to live according to your will and to not ever be separated from Christ. We ask in his name. Amen. The Lord is returning to the subject of producing fruit or obedience, remaining in his word, being faithful to him until the very end. This passage is in this long discourse from chapter 13, from the end of chapter 13 and into chapter 16, at the end of 16, and then a prayer in chapter 17, before he is arrested in 18, in the Garden of Gethsemane. These are the last few days of his life. We have already also seen that though he has told them he's leaving, he's not leaving them alone. He is not abandoning them. He's not leaving them as orphans. He's not forsaking them because he loves them. He will be with them. His Holy Spirit will be with them to comfort them, to guide them, to support them in the grace that they need to live the Christian life. The Holy Spirit will be with them. Also, he reminds them to love each other and to follow the commandments of God. And then warns them of the fact that if they don't produce fruit, if they don't love God, obey his commandments, then they will be thrown away. They will be discarded. They will be burned up. He warns them and us of this very truth. Though Christ is not with us in person, His Spirit is with us. God the Father is with us. And therefore, we have whatever means we need to love God, to obey God, to remain in His Word, to remain in the truth, to remain in the faith, to remain with a true and resolute heart, to remain true to the Lord. We have this ability now that we are in Christ. And because we have that, We ought to bear fruit. And when we do bear fruit, 
We first and foremost, as he says in verse 8, we glorify his Father. Glorify the Father. We're here to glorify God. That is our main purpose in life. And the way we glorify him, praise him, bring honor to his name, is by bearing much fruit. But also, we are assured when we do bear much fruit that we belong to Christ. When people do not bear fruit, then they have reason to doubt that they actually belong to Christ. But when they do bear good fruit and bear much fruit, they prove to be his disciples. Verse 8. He says, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. That's the first part. And the second part. And so prove to be my disciples. We have this confidence, assurance that we are his disciples because we are bearing much fruit in our Christian life. This is essentially what he is addressing in verses 1 to 8. Let's review each of the verses and then highlight some of the main points that we should take away from it. In verse 1, he calls himself the true vine. I am the true vine. I am the true vine. Christ is the true vine. So he is a vine. And he doesn't just mean the straight up part. He means the main part of the plant. That's who he is. He is that. And he is the true one. He's the true one. Because there are many false ones that don't produce good fruit. That don't produce any fruit. And they mislead people. If he is the true vine, then we ought to know him and no one else. John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It will not do to follow anyone else. Only Jesus Christ. He's the true one. That implies others are false. Now, this true vine, this analogy, should not be new to the disciples, the apostles, or anyone familiar with the Scriptures, because the Christ, the Messiah, was known to be a vine because of the Old Testament. Psalm 80, verse 15 Psalm 80, verse 15 says, we'll read verse 15 and 17. Verse 15, even the shoot which your right hand has planted and on the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. Verse 17, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you make strong, for yourself. The man of God's right hand. Who is that? Well, Christ sits and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and also he is called the Son of Man, whom you make strong for yourself. Christ came into the world to glorify the Father. That's why if we belong to him, we also glorify the Father. Isaiah 11 also uses the analogy of a plant or of a tree. Isaiah 11, verse 1. 11, we'll read 11, 1 to 5. And it'll become clear that Isaiah is preaching Christ. 11, 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. This is Christ, identified as a plant. A plant, the true vine. This is the Christ. Then, in verse 1 of John 15, it says, My father is the vine dresser. Vine dresser, or the planter, 
or the farmer, the gardener, is the father. The father is the ultimate source of this true vine who produces branches that produce good fruit. It is the father himself who is the vine dresser, the farmer, the planter. Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60, 21. 60 and verse 21. Then all your people will be righteous. They will possess the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. Isaiah 61. 61, 1 to 3. A prophecy of the coming Christ. 61, 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the, to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Those who know him are called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he, the Lord, may be glorified. Matthew 15, Matthew 15, verse 13, 15, 13. But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. Every plant which my heavenly Father did not plant shall be rooted up. That means that we must make sure that we are plants of our Heavenly Father, of the Heavenly Father, the Heavenly Father of Christ, who is called the vine dresser. So Christ is the true vine, the Father is the vine dresser. Then we come to John 15, verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. In sum, verse 2 explains the rest of the passage. Verse 2 explains the other people involved in this passage, the other persons involved in this passage. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit. There are branches in him, in the vine, that do not bear fruit. Those that are unfruitful, God takes away. God the Father takes away. Unfruitful branches, God takes away. That's one set of branches. But then verse 2 also says, And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. That's the other group. That's the other set of people. They are branches that are fruitful. Fruitful branches. And even those fruitful branches have some pruning that takes place. That means when a branch, a fruitful branch is pruned, God the Father has to clip it. He has to take a knife or scissors, some kind of clippers, to prune the plant, the fruitful plant. It's doing well, it is fruitful, but if the gardener, if the vine dresser clips that fruitful branch, then it will spur it on, it will ignite it to produce more fruit. And that's the goal, to be extremely fruitful, to bear more fruit. This is what God does to the fruitful branches. So these are the four main parts or the four main people in this passage. The true vine, the vine dresser, unfruitful branches, Fruitful branches. That's the summary of the passage, of who's involved. Now, verse 3. Having said that, verse 3. 
You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Who are the you who are already clean? The clean ones are the 11 apostles. Not all 12, but 11 of them. He uses the term clean. This will remind us of chapter 13. In chapter 13, verse 10, 13, 10, and 11, Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. In this room, in, at this supper, he has the 12 apostles. He says, you are clean, but not all of you. He means 11 out of the 12. And we know this because he continues, for example, in verse 18. 13, 18. I do not speak of all of you, meaning all who are clean, all who belong to the master. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but... It is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. That is, one of them, Judas Iscariot, would lift up his heel against Christ, even though he's eating there next to Christ at the meal. A betrayer is Judas Iscariot. So, you are already clean. The disciples, 11 of the 12 apostles, are already clean. He's meaning them when he says that in 15.3. You are already clean. But what cleansed them? What cleansed them? He says, because of the word which I have spoken to you. He means the word of the gospel is what cleansed them. The word of Christ cleansed them. This is what makes a dirty and filthy man, a clean man on the inside. We're not talking about the physical body. The physical cleansing or physical washing and bathing is only a symbol of the internal. It is the word of Christ that cleanses a man, not anything else. The word of Christ. And the Spirit of Christ uses the word of Christ. The Spirit of God uses the word of God to produce a child of God. The Spirit of God uses the Word of God to cleanse an individual to become a child of God. This is what he says in verse 3. That's how it happens. Verse 4. Since they are in that condition of being cleansed or saved, being fruitful branches, they are. He tells them what? Verse 4. Abide in me and I in you. Abide in me and I in you. To abide means to remain, to continue. To abide means to remain or to continue. Continue in me and I in you. He does not leave them alone. He does not tell them, okay, you can move on, carry on with your life. You can do your own will. He does not say anything like that. He says, abide in me. You already abide in me but it's necessary for you to remain in me. Continue to abide in me. You cannot be your own master. You have one as your master, who is Christ. As the branch, now the reason, verse 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Whenever we see in life a branch broken off of a tree and it's set aside, does that branch become fruitful? No, it shrivels and dies because it has no root. It has no stock. It has no trunk. It has no ability to grow. When a branch is separated, when it is by itself it cannot bear fruit, he says. This shows that those who believe cannot be separate from Christ. They must be in Christ 
all the time. They must remain in Christ continually to bear fruit. If they don't bear, if they don't remain in Him, they cannot bear fruit. He says, "Cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine." So neither can you unless you abide in Me. We cannot have a mentality of being separate from Christ, but also being okay with God. We are not pleasing to God if we are separated. From Christ. Verse 5 I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 5 clearly announces I am the vine, you are the branches. If there has been any confusion, Now he has brought this analogy, this illustration, in clear terms to their mind. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him. He repeats verse 5. Verses 5 and 4. 4 and 5 go together. He's repeating the fact that it's necessary for you to remain in me, and I in you, because it's mutual, There is a bond, there is a unity between the two. There is fellowship between the two of us. This is necessary, and when this is happening, he, the branch, bears much fruit. Much fruit. God is not about just helping you clean up your life a little bit. He's not about civil Uh, civility. That is, if somebody used to be uh, a very obnoxious person, and then suddenly he learns some civility and learns to be a little courteous, a little more courteous to people so that people can tolerate him, he has learned to be courteous. He's learned civility. He's learned to be a good person, the way the world uses the word good person, a good man. And that is better than him being an obnoxious man, being a jerk, right? People would rather hang around a person like that than not. But that doesn't mean he's a Christian. You have to bear much fruit. According to the way the Bible describes fruit and much fruit to show that you are a Christian. And how does that happen? In Christ, because he says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Utter inability of man on his own. Utter inability of man on his own, verses 4 and 5. He says, cannot bear fruit of itself, verse 4. Neither can you unless you abide in me, verse 4. Verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. We are nothing. We are worthless. We produce bad fruit. Even the good fruit of a worldly sense, that is, the civil person, the civil man, the civil woman, the one who knows that he needs to be kind to other people for people to like him, that kind of a man, even he cannot do anything unless he's in Christ. Because whatever he's doing is not good enough for God. It has to be that which is by faith in Jesus Christ. Only that kind of fruit is true fruit, good fruit. But what if that does not happen? Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, And they are burned. Those who do not abide in Christ are thrown away as a branch. And they are then they dry up. They are gathered and cast into the fire and they burn up. Unfruitful branches are cut off from the tree. Unfruitful branches are cut off by the vine dresser. That is God the Father. He cuts them off of the tree and then 
they dry up. He has his angels to gather up all of the wicked, those stumbling blocks throughout the whole world. And then they will cast all of the wicked, the unfruitful branches, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and they'll be burned up. This is the way he describes it. Either there are fruitful or there are, there are unfruitful branches, and the unfruitful ones have no life, no eternal life. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. When there is this abiding, mutual abiding, that is, we abide in him, remain in him, his words abide in us, remain in us, that means that we don't look at the words of Christ as bitter, distasteful words. We don't look at the words of Christ as sour, poisonous words. We receive his words, and they, those words remain in us, continue in us, and those words bear fruit in us. We are overjoyed to hear his words, to know his words, to produce good fruit in us. If we are in that condition, if we are in that state as believers, then he says, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. Ask whatever you wish. He says it in verse 16 too. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. In chapter 14, 14, 13. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. This is the promise that we have answers to our prayers. So, assurance. Assurance of the love of God. And then verse 8. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. God is glorified by us bearing much fruit. The glorification of God the Father is the reason He created the world. The glorification of God the Father is the reason He redeems some of the people of the world that He created. The glorification of the Father is also the reason why He meets out justice to the wicked, the reprobate who never eventually believe. The glorification of God is at the center of all of this. Not the love of God, not the grace of God, not the mercy of God, not even the justice of God. The mercy of God or love of God and the justice of God are to support the glory of God. This is the main reason. And he highlights this in reference to our redemption by saying that you bear much fruit. Because when he redeems us, the way the Father is glorified is by our fruit bearing. If we are fruitful, then God is pleased and glorified. Not otherwise. And further, verse 8. And so prove to be his disciples. Prove to be my disciples, he says. This shows that it is necessary to prove it. It's necessary to prove we are disciples of Christ. That might be a very astonishing thing to hear. That it's necessary to prove. Because people think automatically, if they think it, it's true. If they say it, it's true. If they did something in their life previously in terms of the Christian faith, then it's true they are disciples of Jesus Christ. But Jesus says here, no. It's necessary to prove to be my disciples. It does not get declared automatically. Fruit is necessary, much fruit is necessary to prove our discipleship in Christ. Okay? This is what he's explaining here. Now, from this passage, from this passage, 
people have uh, an assortment of misinterpretations. Assortment of misinterpretations. One misinterpretation says that since professions of faith are real, are always real, if somebody says he believes in Christ, then he believes, then that person is saved once he professes faith, but then when he denies the faith, forgets or forsakes the faith, says, I don't want anything to do with it, forget it, I don't want anything to do with this anymore, then that person lost salvation, lost eternal life, forfeited eternal life. He first possessed it because he was in Christ and produced some fruit, and then he lost it and became an unfruitful branch. So that means that there could be a single individual, they say, who is fruitful, is a fruitful branch, and then he becomes an unfruitful branch, unfruitful, and then is separated, loses salvation. Has it, and then loses it. They take it from this passage, especially verse 2 and 6. Verses 2 and 6. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. These are the verses. However, in that interpretation, they fail to understand that when Jesus says, every branch in me, he is talking about the professors. He's talking about the visible gathering of the people of God. He's talking about the visible, physical church. Because he's talking, in this context, he's talking about his 12 disciples, right? And otherwise, in the church, throughout the history of the world, in the church, there were those who were truly believers, and they remained faithful. And then there were those who seemed to be, because they professed it, they walked it for a short time, but eventually showed themselves not to be true believers. Correct? They showed themselves not to be true believers, and therefore, they visibly and temporarily, everyone thought they were believers, but eventually they show that they are unbelievers. They never were believers in the first place. That's the key. They looked like believers, they pretended to be believers, but they were never believers in the first place. Let's show this to be the, the, the case. That they were never initially and truly believers. Shall we go to the book of Hebrews to show that unfruitful branches were never true branches in the first place? The book of Hebrews, chapter 6. The book of Hebrews, chapter 6. 6, 1 to 8. 6, 1 to 8. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings, and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we shall do, if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed. And it ends up being burned. The concern the apostle has in verses 1 and 2 
is for us to press on to maturity. That's verse 1. Let us press on to maturity. There are those who will press on to maturity and those who will not press on. Those who do press on to maturity are those who produce vegetation, verse 7, and receive a blessing from God, verse 7. They press on to maturity, verse 7, because they are fruitful. They produce vegetation. However, there are those who temporarily enjoy the benefits of God, but they do not produce fruit. Those who temporarily received the benefits of God. Verses 4 to 6. What are those blessings? They are once enlightened. They taste of the heavenly gift. They partake of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5. Taste the good word of God, the powers of the age to come. These are the many blessings that they experienced. But does this mean that they are believers because they experience these blessings? That's the key question. Verse 6 says, And then have fallen away. They experience the blessings and then fall away. Okay. The proponents of loss of salvation say, We receive it and lose it. Receive it and lose it. Receive it and lose it. Any number of times. Typically, that's the way they believe. Except for certain denominations, like Catholics and Lutherans, who say, you can only receive it and lose it one time. And you could lose it if you commit a very heinous sin, a mortal sin. Then you might lose it and lose it permanently. Otherwise, other denominations say you can gain it and lose it, gain it and lose it several times, many times. Yet this passage says it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Impossible to renew to repentance. That eliminates gaining and losing it many times. That, that eliminates that possibility. And that is for those who have the spiritual blessings of verses 4 and 5, which they experienced in their life. So verses 7 and 8, what is the key? He's illustrating in verses 7 and 8 that one type of ground or soil is fruitful, the other is unfruitful. So which is unfruitful in his Interpretation, verses 4 to 6. The unfruitful people are those who have the spiritual blessings, but then they don't have repentance or enduring repentance. They don't have maturity of of verse 1. They are the unfruitful people. The unfruitful people, verse 8 describes them. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and ends up being burned. Christ said that in John 15, 6. They are thrown away, they dry up, they are gathered, and then they are burned. Same thing here. Because they are worthless, unfruitful branches, according to Christ, even though they had spiritual blessings, verses 4 and 5. Also, Hebrews 3. Since it's Hebrews 6 that is the main argument for loss of salvation, let's go to Hebrews 3. In the same letter, by the same apostle, the same scripture, the same one by the Holy Spirit, to show that chapter 6 and chapter 3 go together, they don't contradict, they harmonize. Chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 12 to 19. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ 
If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. In verse 12, he tells the brethren to take care. He calls them brethren or brothers. He calls them brothers because this assembled church or churches that receive this letter, which includes us now, that among the churches who call each other's brothers and sisters, in the churches that call each other brothers and sisters like that, it doesn't mean because one man calls another man brother that the other man is actually a true brother. How do we know? That that's the way he means it. Because he said in verse 12, take care or there might be one of you, any one of you, who is called a brother, but actually you have an evil, unbelieving heart. And your evil, unbelieving heart causes you to fall away from the living God. Evil, unbelieving heart. Because of verse 13, the deceitfulness or hardness, any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Any one of you. Because he called them brothers, he's not saying, I know for a fact that every one of you who received this letter, read this letter, every one of you is a brother. He says, any one of you might not be a brother. So be warned. Take care. By the deceitfulness of sin, your heart may be hardened. 14 now. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. This is the important factor. This is the crucial factor. What's he say in 14? We have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast, the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Let's read this verse another way. If we hold fast, the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, we have become partakers of Christ. They could have put it into English the opposite way. But because the apostle in Greek fronted the result, English fronts the result. We have become partakers of Christ. So that is a true result, but on a condition. And what is the condition? If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So then, what if somebody does not hold firm until the end? If someone does not hold fast and hold firm until the end does not abide in Christ, remain in Christ, continue in Christ until the end. If he does not, then he has not become a partaker of Christ. Because the two parts of the verse go together. They are bound up together. They are joined up by the if and the then. It's an if clause and a then clause. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end, then we have become partakers of Christ. So when we refute the argument, they were never saved in the first place, we say, to those who say, have and lose salvation, back and forth. We say, no, they seemed to be believers, they professed to be believers, they claimed to be believers, but they were not true believers because a true believer will not reject Christ, will not walk away from Christ, will not continue to practice his sin against Christ. He will not do that, but he will seek to remain in Christ and overcome his sins 
in Christ. These are the ones who hold fast from the beginning until the end. So if they don't hold firm until the end, they didn't have it at the beginning. They pretended, but they didn't have it. They might even be delusional, self-delusional, thinking they had it, but they did not actually have it. Let's also see this in the book of Luke. Luke 8, Luke 8, 5, to, uh, 4 to 15. Luke 8, 4 to 15. Luke 8 and verse 4. Verse 4, And when a great multitude were coming together, and those from the various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. The, and other seed fell into the good ground and grew up and produced a crop of a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, there's four soils. The seed is one seed. The sower or the planter, the farmer, he is scattering and throwing his seed, sowing his seed on the ground. Verse 5, it's sown on the road. The birds of the air devour it, though. But it's seed. That's a good thing. And it fell on the ground. That's a good thing. But it fell on the road. That's the bad part. And just because seed fell on the ground, there's no guarantee that it will produce fruit, that it is fruitful, because it says the birds ate it up. Verse 5. Verse 6 Rocky soil, that rocky soil, it's better than the road. It's rocky, it's not roady. So it's rocky, verse 6. And it says, as soon as it grew up. That means between the rocks, the little bit of soil and sunlight and water that it received, that, that seed grew up. However, it withered because it wasn't moist enough. It wasn't watery enough. It wasn't damp enough. So it says it withered away because it had no moisture. So was there any fruit that came to the top in the first two examples? Any fruit? Were there any apples, any grapes in this plant, in this tree? No. Verse 7. And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Now in this case, the plant, the seeds are more successful They grow up higher, but then there are weeds that grow up next to it, and then the weeds become stronger than the plant, and then the plant, though it came up out of the ground, and it was more successful than those seeds on the road and those seeds on the rock, it was higher, it looks good, it looks like it's going to be good for it, just wait some time, the farmer thinks, but no, The weeds choke it. The weeds choke it, right? So there's no fruit. There are no oranges, no apples, no pears, no grapes, no figs, okay? Verse 9. Sorry, verse 8. Verse 8. And other seed fell into the good ground and and grew up, produced a crop a hundred times as great. And as he said these things, he would call out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In verse 8, Only this ground, verse 8, is called good ground. And only this ground produced a crop, produced fruit, produced anything beneficial to the sower, to the farmer, to the planter, right? Only that. And how did did that happen? Verse 8, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It happened by the sovereignty of God. Because God is the one who gives ears the ability to, to receive what they hear so that they are the good ground and they grow up and become fruitful. Now the interpretation, verse 9. And his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable might be. And he said, 
To you it is granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, in order that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. That also, verses 9 and 10, the sovereignty of God. If God grants, then those individuals who hear, they see and hear. But if God doesn't grant, they don't see and hear. Now, more fully, the interpretation, verse 11. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God, and those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil uh, comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they may not believe and be saved. And those on the rocky soil are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no firm root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. And the seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. And the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Now the interpretation. It's unmistakable. Verse 12 Those seeds that fell on the road where the birds ate them, he says, so that they may not believe and be saved. Just because they heard it, just because they came into a church service and heard it, doesn't mean that they are saved. Does not mean they are believers. Because it says that the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart. It went into the heart in a superficial sense. It went into the heart, not in a true sense, but in a superficial surface sense, just like the seed falls on the surface of the road. It doesn't go inside the road, underneath the ground. It's on the surface of the road. So it's a superficial going into the heart. And the devil takes that away so that they may not believe. So they don't believe. They are not believers. Verse 13, on the rocky soil, they receive the word with joy. Is joy necessarily a fruit of the Holy Spirit? Galatians 5, 5, uh, 13 to 26. Is it necessarily a fruit of the Holy Spirit? No, it depends on the kind of joy. People have joy when they have a sports victory, correct? They have joy when they finish a project at home. They have joy for different reasons. And in this case, it is a temporary joy because it says they believe for a while. So temporary joy is not true joy. Temporary joy is not the joy of the Holy Spirit because also they have no firm root. No root, no fruit. Correct? A tree must have a root. If it has a root, then it has fruit. If it's good. But if it's no root, then there is no fruit. Verse 13, a fruitless a fruitless response. Verse 13. And it's the temptations of the world that make them fall away. Temptations. Yes, what you said, it sounds really good for a moment. But then when I go out of the worship service and then I go and listen to my friends, I go and listen to the world, what they say sounds good and I have even more joy, worldly joy, and they fall away. I'd rather be with all my 10 friends rather than with you, my one friend. Because I have more fun out there. Verse 14. No, uh, 14. Says, The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, which is good. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. These are the ones that came up, right, among the thorns. But the thorns, though the thorns may allow the plant to grow up some, and even perhaps to start budding 
and blossoming, and even a small part of the fruit might begin to show and grow on the tree, on the branch. But it does not come to fruition. It does not come out to the full so that it is ripe, so that it's juicy, so that it is edible. Right? It doesn't come to maturity. That's not true fruit. Who wants to eat a raw banana? Right? Nobody wants to eat a raw banana or anything else. By raw, I mean very green. Very green. Nobody wants to eat that. That's not a fruit that has come to maturity. That's the description. And what tempted it? What is the thorn, or what are the thorns that choke whatever the plant had? Worries, riches, pleasures of this life. Worries, riches, pleasures of this life. They will choke the plant. Then uh, 15, and the seed in the good ground. These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. Look at those key words. Verse 15, it's good ground, which means the first three were not good ground. 15 says they have heard the word, which is what the others did, and that's good. But they have an honest heart. The other ones had a dishonest heart. This ground has an honest heart and a good heart. That means the others had an evil heart that never changed, that was never converted. Remember Hebrews 3 said, lest there should be in any one of you with an evil, unbelieving heart. But in this case, they have a good heart. A good heart. Further, they hold it fast. Hold it fast. Didn't Hebrews 3 say, hold fast? The beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. Firm until the end. Well, the end is here. Hold it fast with perseverance. Hold it fast with perseverance. And also, bear fruit. They bear fruit. 30, 60, and 100-fold, as Matthew and Mark say. They bear fruit. So they bear a lot of fruit. A lot of good fruit. So, John 15 is about the visible church and the bearing of fruit in that visible church. Another factor, another aspect of John 15 that we have to consider is the fact that true believers produce fruit. True believers produce fruit. One cannot be a believer and be unfruitful. There is no such thing as an unfruitful believer. If we believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, He is also Lord, which means He's our Master. He's our Ruler. If we say we believe in Him, we are not only believers, we are also disciples. Discipleship is not for those who are extra interested, who have extra time in their life, or who are old people and have nothing else to do. Discipleship is not for obscure people like that. It's for everyone. Christ must be Lord and Christ must be our discipler, our teacher, from the beginning of our conversion until the end of our conversion. That is what is necessary. That is the good fruit he means here. Also, good fruit is not merely just a change of behavior. It's not just a change of behavior or good conduct. It is good deeds. It is godliness. But it's not just a temporary change of behavior. Uh, Let's use the illustration of a child. A child who is unruly. A child who has a foul mouth. If he is disciplined and he becomes ruly... He becomes one with a clean mouth. It doesn't necessarily mean that that child is a believer. It doesn't necessarily mean that. 
There are many children in the world, both within and without Christianity, who don't use profanity, who don't use foul and dirty words. Many children are like that around the world. It doesn't necessarily mean they are believers. They must produce fruit according to the way the Bible describes what fruit is. What is true fruit? Now, this fruit is not only in reference to our ethics, our morality, our conduct. It includes that. But it is also in reference to what we believe about God. What we believe about God. Our theology. So good fruit encompasses both theology and morality. Both theology and morality. Not just morality, but theology and morality produced by God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in us, producing sound theology and sound morality. By sound, we mean healthy. Healthy theology, healthy morality. Shall we show that? Let's show that in the book of Galatians. Book of Galatians, chapter 5. Galatians, chapter 5. 5.19. Galatians 5.19 to 24. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In this list of the deeds of the flesh, which would be the rotten fruit, the rotten fruit, or the deeds of the flesh, that's verses 19 to 21. He does have many aspects of morality or ethics. He says immorality or sexual immorality, fornication, uh, sensuality, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, drunkenness, These are clearly the way we behave, the way we live our life. So it includes that, no doubt about it. But it's not exclusive to that because he mentioned idolatry and sorcery. Idolatry and sorcery are more theological than moral, right? Idolatry and sorcery, though idolaters and sorcerers practice immorality too, He's talking about idolatry, the sin of idolatry and the sin of sorcery, correct? Well, in Galatians, has he accused the Galatians of such? Yes. In the earlier chapters, from chapters 1 to 4, he has primarily been talking about their corrupt, fleshly theology. In chapters 1 to 4, in Galatians, he's been talking about their corrupt and depraved unbiblical, heretical theology. And notice 3 verse 1. 3 verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? He says, who has bewitched you? To be bewitched means you consulted a witch. If you consult a witch, witches are idolaters and sorcerers. Or warlocks, the men. Men are warlocks, women are witches, right? So their false teachers who were teaching them not to believe in justification by faith in Christ alone, by faith alone in Christ alone, by grace alone in the one gospel alone, chapters 1 to 4, They were saying, no, 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 no. There's Christ plus other things. 
And Abraham didn't believe the gospel, so we don't need to believe the gospel the way you're saying it, Paul. That's what they were saying in chapters 1 to 4. Paul's refuting that in chapters 1 to 4. And he accuses them of following witches. Their false teachers, theological false teachers, were witches. That's the accusation against them. So whenever we believe a false gospel, we are bewitched. We consult sorcerers and idolaters. So good fruit includes theology and morality. So what shall we do? Shall we glorify God the Father by bearing much fruit? And shall we prove to be his disciples? Let's be fruitful branches attached permanently to the vine, the true vine, Christ our Lord. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.